Britain was the same during its period of global hegemony. France is the same in the regions it dominates. Russia is the same in the regions, much smaller regions it dominates. That's Noam Chomsky, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Noam Chomsky on The U.S. Rules the World. Many years ago, I heard Noam Chomsky lecture. He compared U.S. foreign policy to the way the mafia operates. That caught the audience's attention. Everyone had seen the Godfather movie. Chomsky went on to explain that obedience to the Godfather was non-negotiable. Do what you're told, and you'll not only be protected, but richly rewarded. But if you step out of line, the Godfather will come down on you. And so it is with U.S. foreign policy. Dissent is not tolerated. Countries such as Cuba, Nicaragua, Iran, Chile, Venezuela, Indonesia, and other countries with politics and systems that defied Washington have felt the wrath of U.S. power. The U.S. rules the world. Our guest today is Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar-activist who has been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. Noted independent journalist John Pilger says, Noam Chomsky is an enduring inspiration all over the world for the simple reason that he is a truth-teller on an epic scale. At 92, Chomsky continues to write and speak on public issues. Author of scores of books, his latest are Consequences of Capitalism and Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal. I talked with him on June 21st. Now, a relatively new term that has come up uh, in Washington, and I'd like you to translate it, please, into plain English, and that is a rules-based international order. In plain English, it means do what we say or else. We run the rules. If we don't like the rules, we throw them out. But if we want you to observe the rules we establish, you better do it or else you're in trouble. So most of the rules the U.S. doesn't pay any attention to. By now, the U.S. is perhaps the only country that has rejected a world court decision that was in the case of Nicaragua, 1986. The world court ruled that the U.S. should terminate its terrorist activities, what they called unlawful use of force against Nicaragua, and pay substantial reparations. Now, this was dismissed with ridicule in the United States. Uh, New York Times explained that uh, the editors, that we don't have to pay attention to the world court because it's what they called a hostile forum, as proven by the fact that they issued a judgment against the United States. So therefore, we can ignore it. The issue went to the Security Council, which debated a resolution calling for all states to observe international law. Didn't mention anyone, but everyone knew who they meant. U.S. vetoed it. All of this has disappeared into 
non-existent history, wrong story. Most laws, the international conventions, the U.S. just doesn't ratify. And what about the uh, International Criminal Court? I mean, the U.S. did sign it, but th then did not ratify it. Correct. It was never ratified. So the U.S. is technically not a member. However, the U.S. has acted severely to, to block the ICC from doing things that Washington doesn't like, even imposed sanctions. In fact, as you may recall, under the Bush administration, legislation was passed, which in Europe is called the uh, Netherlands Invasion Act. That's an act which grants the U.S. executive, the president, the right to use military force to rescue any American who's brought to The Hague for trial by any international tribunal. The U.S. is alone in this. Uh, the U.S. has avoided some other international jurisdiction in other interesting ways. So Yugoslavia brought a case to the world court charging NATO with abuses in its bombing of Yugoslavia. While the other NATO powers accepted the jurisdiction, of course, the case was thrown out later, but they accepted it, not the United States. The United States excused itself, and the world court accepted the excuse. The excuse was that the Yugoslav appeal case had mentioned genocide, and the United States is self-exempted from the Genocide Convention. It was a genocide convention. The U.S. didn't pay attention to it for, I think, about 40 years. But then finally, the U.S. did sign it, however, with a reservation excluding the United States. So therefore, the United States formally claims that it has the right to commit genocide. And on those grounds, it was exempted from the world court hearings on the Yugoslav case on the bombing of Serbia. Well, basically, to go back to the short answer to your question, a rules-based order means we do what we like and you do what we like. What did you think of the uh, Biden administration's acknowledgement of the Armenian genocide? There was a lot of pressure to do that. It's been hanging in Congress for a long time. I don't know exactly what led to it now, but yes, they finally did uh, uh, recognize Armenian genocide back during the First World War. Certainly not very hard for the United States to do because it's somebody else's crime. There's no recognition of uh, the extermination of Native Americans, for example. Well, given the level of rhetoric, sanctions, military maneuvers from Washington towards Beijing, are we heading into a new Cold War? Or maybe I should change the tense and say we are in a new Cold War. Well, so far it's a one-sided new Cold War. Uh, the Trump administration had been fairly aggressive towards China, 
the Biden administration has escalated that. It's now a real, it's bipartisan. The Republicans love it. The military industry is practically salivating with joy over the new militant steps, which offer them a great deal. Democrats are supporting it. It's a bipartisan campaign, which is not only idiotic, but is extremely hazardous. Uh, You look at the timeline of actions that's been taken. It's shocking. Just building up a yellow peril hysteria, which of course goes way back in American history, back to the 1880s, when Chinese were barred from entry to the United States. Picked up again in the 1950s with uh, lunacy about uh, Chinese, uh, hysteria about Chinese threats to conquer and destroy the United States. Now it's being revived. The extent to which it's being revived is, I mean, if it wasn't so serious, you could call it comical. So like when Schumer wants to push through what's called an infrastructure bill, something the United States desperately needs, it's collapsing infrastructure that includes other measures like improving our collapsing educational system, uh, providing some limited form of child care as they have in just about every other developed country. In order to do these things which are essential for the United States, it had to be put in the framework of an anti-China bill. So there's a bill saying we have to make sure that China doesn't get ahead of us in uh, artificial intelligence or uh, semiconductors or something else. And in order to make sure that China doesn't get ahead of us, let's do what's essential for our needs. Can't get it through otherwise. Of course, if it had been done without the hate China part, uh, Republicans would have been 100% opposed. As long as it's in the framework of more militarism, more violence, more threats of war, uh, hate China, racism, then the Republicans are willing to come on board enthusiastically. And the Democrats too, that's Schumer and the rest of them. It's madness. I mean, if you look what's actually happening on the ground, it's unbelievable. I mean, Chinese bombers have actually penetrated Taiwanese uh, the defense, air defense area. Meanwhile, Biden sends a huge naval armada with two major aircraft carriers into the South China Sea. Highly provocative measures. Well, it all could explode at any time. And uh, notice it's not in the Caribbean, it's in the South China Sea. Actually, China's doing things in the South China Sea that it shouldn't be doing. It is violating uh, international law. But the United States is hardly in a strong position to complain about that, since the United States doesn't is the one country that has not even accepted the relevant international law, the law of the sea. So what kind of standing do we have to criticize China in its own regional area? South China Sea is, of course, of extraordinary strategic 
and commercial significance for China. It's their one avenue into the rest of the world. China, of course, is contained, as we put it, by uh, American nuclear bases and allies. There's a ring surrounding China from the east, Guam, and the Pacific Islands, Okinawa, Korea, U.S. nuclear forces. Take a look at a map. Essentially blocks off China from the Pacific. Their one more or less free avenue is through the South China Sea, which has to go through the narrow Straits of Malacca, controlled by U.S. allies. Uh, all of this is this doesn't justify Chinese actions in the South China Sea, but it goes a long way towards explaining. And uh, the United States is now strengthening what's called the Quad, an anti-Chinese alliance, India, Australia, Japan, and the United States. Japan, a very right-wing government. Australia, a far-right government. India, under an extremist right-wing government, joining with the United States, the Quad, to uh, defend freedom of the seas and defend the rule of law. I mean, it's, if it wasn't so ominous, you'd burst out laughing. Uh, but uh, it is very ominous. And uh, we have to prevent Chinese development. We have to prevent their commercial expansion. We have to do everything to ensure that there's no possible challenge to U.S. global dominance. Uh, we're concerned about the Chinese military. I mean, their military expenditures are a tiny fraction of ours. Uh, we spend about 40%, I think, the latest figures of global armaments expenditures. Chinese, about maybe 15%. And, of course, they're in a far more vulnerable position than we are. They're surrounded by enemies. Uh, per capita, of course, their spending is far less. But we have to be concerned that they might overwhelm us. It's uh, sanction after sanction. Even the pursuing the uh, politicization of the COVID origins issue, which is framed as an anti-China campaign, not as a campaign to try to figure out what happened, because maybe we can all, working together, uh, uh, help ourselves. It's, I mean, the whole, the madness that is developing in the United States is, over this is shocking, unfortunately familiar, goes back to the 1880s. QUAD stands for Quadrilateral Security uh, Dialogue. And given the uh, anti-China hysteria that's being whipped up in the United States, there have been literally attacks on Asians and Asian Americans in the streets of the United States. It's having that kind of uh, feedback, unfortunately, to a lot of anti-Asian racism, which is by no means new, as many causes, uh, but it's, uh, it's now showing up more severely with threats to Asians and sometimes implemented threats. Well, talk about, uh, you know, some of China's internal uh, issues, its oppression of the Uyghur 
Muslim minority in Western China, uh, Tibet, Hong Kong, uh, reports of worker unrest. Uh, at the same time, there's a class of billionaires that's exploded in China as in the United States. Well, Chinese capitalism is probably even more unequal than American, certainly comparable, very unequal society. Uh, there are abuses that should be condemned. I, I don't think anything new has happened in Tibet. It's an old problem. In Hong Kong, China has become more repressive, imposing restrictions on Hong Kong's democracy, which we should recall is a recent democracy. Granted, it was a British colony stolen from China by violence during the period when Britain was leading the global war against China. Chinese don't forget this. We might forget it. But in the 19th century, we might recall that a large part of the basis for the wealth of Britain and its offshoots was narco-trafficking, a major enterprise, conquered much of India in order to try to gain a monopoly of the opium trade, which it could then use to force opium into China at gunpoint. China had been the richest and most advanced country in the world, but Europe was far superior in the means of savagery and violence. That's how Europe conquered the world. When uh, the Chinese administrator in Canton province uh, approached Queen Victoria to ask her to enforce the law and prevent British narco-traffickers from violating the privileges granted to them in Canton, Queen Victoria responded by sending the British fleet to destroy Chinese fleet and its defenses and force more opium into China. The British then invaded, even conquered Beijing, destroyed the Summer Palace. All of this for narco-trafficking, okay? Part of it was stealing Hong Kong, turning it into a base for the British narco-trafficking empire. Actually, the Americans were involved in this too. You look at the wealthy families in the United States, the concentration of wealth, many of them go back to participation in the narco-trafficking racket of the 19th century. Actually, I think opium for a time was the major commodity in world trade. Uh, the most famous of the wealthy Americans was Franklin Delano Roosevelt. His grandfather, Warren Delano, made a killing in the China trade by narco-trafficking and left a huge legacy to the Delano family, including Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who believed that he had special insight into China because of the stories his mother, Sarah Delano, was telling him about the exploits of uh, his grandfather. That led to very severe consequences, I should say. Uh, Roosevelt's unwillingness to understand what was happening in China under his years in office because of his alleged personal expertise. 
uh, but all of this is a large part of the background about Hong Kong. Doesn't excuse what China is now doing, but again, it's worth understanding the background. Uh, with regard to the Xinjiang province, the Uyghur, there are credi very credible reports of severe human rights abuses. I read Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, a couple of others. They do include critical, credible reports about the apparently about a million people were sent through re-education camps, and some were uh, treated uh, extremely harshly. Uh, that should be condemned, along with many other things. So, for example, take the uh, two million people, half children, imprisoned in Gaza with USAID. Uh, they are subject to far harsher treatment than anything that's Incredibly been reported about the Uyghur. And while we can't do much about the Uyghur abuses except to condemn them, we can do a great deal about the evidently far worse abuses that we are helping to implement in Gaza. But we don't talk about that. That doesn't invoke my late friend Ed Herman's terminology. Now, there are what he called worthy and unworthy victims. The worthy victims are the victims of some official enemy, which we can't do much about. The unworthy victims are the ones we can do a great deal about because we're responsible for the abuses. So we focus on the worthy victims, ignore the unworthy ones. Now you read the New York Times report on the latest Israeli atrocities in Gaza, starts with saying uh, Hamas rockets wrecked Israeli apartments and there was damage in Gaza. Not exactly what happened. <laughs> That's the way you deal with unworthy victims. China is on track to become the world's largest economy in a, in a very few years. What are the implications of that? China is the world's largest economy. If you use purchasing power parity, it's one of the measures. It doesn't mean anything. In the 18th century, China was the world's largest economy. Did that protect them from European and American savagery? First of all, if you look at the, the correct measures per capita, of course, you have a bigger population, you have a larger economy. Okay. China has, uh, what is it, five times the population of the United States. So in per capita terms, it's way below. Uh, if you look at the Human Development Index of the uh, United Nations, which is a measure attempting to include various factors in human development, Last time I looked, China was, I think, about 90th. It's a relatively poor country, which has major internal problems, has enormous ecological problems, has demographic problems, has a deeply, author brutally authoritarian state, which imposes harsh conditions on its development of life. It has made unprecedented gains in economic development, 
in recent years and many achievements before that. So it's often forgotten that, or maybe overlooked, that uh, during the Maoist years, 1949 to 1979, roughly, China saved 100 million lives as compared with India during the same years, comparable cases of societies trying to develop. Uh, India killed 100 million people as compared with China uh, just because it didn't implement the rural development programs, health, education, support for development that were undertaken in the Maoist years. 100 million people is not a small number. That incidentally includes the deaths from the Chinese famine. Even with that, it's 100 million saved. And that laid part of the basis for Chinese later development. So it's a very mixed story. China has enormous problems. It's way behind the West in development. It has problems unknown in the Western societies. The idea that we should be trying to impede Chinese development because it might someday compete with us is, I just can't find words for it. I mean, we should be cooperating with them for the common good. We should be condemning their crimes. They should be condemning our crimes. We should be condemning our crimes and doing something about them, okay? Not just condemning. Now you're saying the Indian 100 million deaths, that was due to poverty. It was due to the failure to undertake the rural reforms that were undertaken under Mao. Health programs, education programs, rural development under uh, Indian state capitalism, but this wasn't done. These, uh, there's a very interesting story about this. Uh, this traces back to work by Amartya Sen, Nobel laureate, highly regarded economist and specialist on India. He had an article in the Journal of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in which he discussed uh, the Chinese famine and uh, the comparison of India to China. Half of the article has been read, the article on the Chinese famine, okay, which of course it condemned. The other half of the article disappeared. Uh, Sen later did a more extensive study with Jean Drez, a uh, well-known Indian economist, uh, came out in a book I've never seen, in which they went through the details on this. I've never seen a mention of it except for what I've written, I've written about it a couple of times. 100 million is an interesting number. 100 million is, there was, as you may recall, a publication called The Black Book of Communism, but widely publicized reviews, all rave reviews all over the place, with rather dubious empirical evidence. It uh, claimed that the communist powers mostly China, were responsible for 100 million deaths. So 100 million is quite a famous number. 
as I say, this book, the base, the empirical basis is pretty weak, but for the sake of argument, let's say it's true. Okay. What about the fact that they saved a hundred million people as compared with India? Unmentionable. Actually, it's backed by U.S. government statistics on demographic growth and so on. This continued until 1979. Uh, after that, the demographic improvements declined. The death tolls, mortality increased and so on as it moved into the state capitalist mode. And of also worth remembering that in the 1940s, China, Mao, tried very hard to approach American emissaries to get them to agree to a, an arrangement between China and a accord between China and the United States, which is very much what like developed, like what developed in the last period. China providing huge manpower, uh, while the United States would be providing. That was Mao's proposal in the late 40s, totally dismissed, totally dismissed in the, throughout the 40s, in fact. Uh, the United States insisted on supporting the quasi-fascist China regime, which didn't want to fight the Japanese. China, money was poured into China's pocket, enriched himself and the Sun family, uh, but it wasn't being used to fight the Japanese invaders. It was Mao's peasant armies off in the northwest corner that were fighting the Japanese invaders. They wanted to cooperate with Chiang. He wouldn't do it. He wanted to save the huge resources, military resources being poured in for a war against Mao after the Japanese were driven out by the Americans. But it's very similar to what happened in Vietnam when Ho Chi Minh during the same years was pleading for U.S. support and cooperation by 1950, the U.S. wouldn't hear it after China liberated itself. These are very important stories which should be well known. They're known to the Chinese, of course. They should be known to us. Again, it doesn't excuse Chinese crimes, which are serious, but it helps explain them. We should be interested in explain understanding the background from which these things are developing. You're listening to Noam Chomsky, The U.S. Rules the World. This is Independent Alternative Radio. You can get CDs of this program and Noam Chomsky's latest books, Consequences of Capitalism and Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, by calling us at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. You can go to our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free printed transcript, PDF, or MP3 of this program, just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. Talk about uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative. The Council on Foreign Relations, an establishment organization, Uh, says of the Belt and Road Initiative, China's colossal infrastructure investments may usher in a new era of trade and growth 
for economies in Asia and beyond. Then CFR adds, but skeptics worry that China is laying a debt trap for borrowing governments. The Belt and Road Initiative grew out of earlier initiatives by what's called the Shanghai Cooperation Council, which was established some years ago at Chinese initiative includes uh, the Central Asian states, Kazakhstan, others, includes Russia, uh, India, I think, is in has observer status, as does Iran. Maybe it's moved beyond that. Uh, they excluded the United States, asked for observer status, but that was rejected. So it's a Shanghai, a China-based development initiative for central, through Central Asia, including Pakistan, reaching in principle as far as Turkey, and thereby entering the European market. The Belt and Road Initiative is an expansion of this. Uh, lots of infrastructure development. You can take a high-speed train from Beijing to Kazakhstan, which can't take it from New York to Washington. The United States is way backward to third world country in development. Fortunately, in the framework of hating China, maybe we can develop something. This, of course, links together. There's a lot of development in Pakistan and development of a major port, which would give China access to the, basically, to Africa and Europe and South Asia. Uh, the so-called debt trap has been closely analyzed. There's a long article in the main establishment journal, Foreign Affairs, a couple of months ago. I've forgotten the title, which looks into it and uh, pretty much discounts it, says there's no indication of a debt trap. I mean, China's loans are often, they have punitive elements like everybody's loans, but they don't seem to be out of the normal range in that respect. Uh, they're not like uh, IMF loans, which have conditionalities that you have to impose destructive structure adjustment pro uh, programs. They're free of those conditionalities. Uh, but I'm sure there's negative aspects to them if you look at them, but doesn't look the least out of the ordinary. Uh, the, Belt and Road Initiative will succeed to integrate Central Asia, uh, ultimately extending to Europe and Africa, uh, integrated within a Chinese-dominated system. The U.S. is trying very hard to stop this all over the place, uh, even in Israel. So, for example, in Israel, there's now a project they put out a tender for the development of a light rail system. Uh, and a couple of Chinese form firms uh, applied, applied for it. Very likely they would have gotten the, uh, the uh, offer. They were better offers. But the United States is intervening hard to try to prevent uh, Israel from allowing China to carry out development projects in Israel. China already administers the Haifa port, which China, does, its U.S. doesn't like at all. It's a major U.S. naval base. 
Uh, but in, that's just an example. But all over the world, the same is happening. Uh, you saw what happened in uh, one of the last acts of the Trump administration was to pressure Panama to expel Cuban doctors because we don't want the malign influence of Cuba to help out Panama in the midst of a COVID crisis. Same kind of pressures to keep countries from using the Chinese vaccines. Brazil, which is very short of vaccines because of Bolsonaro's criminality, which is severe, it's turned Brazil into a major crisis. Uh, the United States has been pressuring all along not to use Chinese vaccines, which are in fact manufactured in Brazil, uh, not to use Russian vaccines, which are, according to Western sources, about the same as Western vaccines. The last act of the Trump administration, you can read it in the Department of Homeland Security uh, publication, was to praise themselves on preventing Brazil from using Russian vaccines to deal with its enormous tragic crisis and to prevent Panama from using Cuban doctors from the one internationalist country in the world uh, to deal with COVID crisis. It's kind of similar to the efforts to keep China from developing. We have to make sure that the U.S. rules the world. That's back to your first comment about rule of law. That's the rule. The U.S. rules the world. Any move to modify that, no matter how benign, is unacceptable. It's not anything the U.S. invented. Britain was the same during its period of global hegemony. France is the same in the regions it dominates. Russia is the same in the regions, much smaller regions it dominates. Now, talk about uh, U.S. relations with uh, Russia and how they've evolved. It was just a amusing column by conservative columnist in the New York Times, Ross Duhat, asking how come liberals are backing off from Russophobia. Uh, I think that was the title, something like that. The fact is that Trump had carried out quite provocative actions with regard to Russia, just as Obama had, and it seems to be increasing under the Biden administration. Uh, quite generally, Biden's foreign policy team uh, has been more uh, aggressive than uh, even than Trump was. And part of it is actions to increase provocations with regard to Russia. It's not a totally true. Biden did succeed. He came into office just in time to uh, salvage the uh, New START Treaty, which was going to expire in February. Trump has refused Russian offers to, it, to extend it. And Biden accepted them. That was a good step. But uh, apart from that, it's been mostly increasing tensions. Now, there are plenty of areas of serious contention. Plenty. But uh, what's needed is diplomacy, negotiations, working out problems peacefully, 
not increasing provocation, which is not only wrong, but basically suicidal. Something moves on to real conflict. We're in serious trouble, all of us. In fact, we're finished. Eisenhower, no dove, in a 1953 speech, talked about the cloud of threatening war. It is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. You've mentioned the Damocles sword that hangs over humanity and the planet, and you've been warning of the eco-disasters looming and the possibility of accidental or intentional uh, nuclear holocaust. So let's start with the latter, the state of the various arms agreements. Uh, Biden has, I believe, uh, not rejoined the Open Skies Treaty. Is that correct? That's correct. The Open Skies Treaty was, in fact, initiated by uh, during the Eisenhower period and enacted later. It's a very important treaty. It uh, reduces tensions by permitting surveillance of uh, the pressure in the United States. Each can carry out surveillance of the other and recognize what's happening and uh, undercut false alarms. And there have been many false alarms. It doesn't have quite the status that it did 60 years ago because of advances in satellites and so on. But nevertheless, it's an important treaty. Trump revoked it just as he revoked every treaty he could. His main policy was to wreck anything that was around. Uh, and Biden has not rejoined it, nor has he made any move to reconstitute the INF Treaty, the Reagan-Gorbachev Treaty in 1987, which did significantly reduce the threat of a conflict in Europe that could have easily been broken out, uh, has done nothing on that. He's also done nothing on the Iran Treaty, contrary to what's constantly claimed. Uh, Biden simply took over the Trump policy. Trump, of course, withdrew from the Iran agreement. It's not a treaty, the Iran nuclear agreement, uh, the JCPOA joint agreement. Trump withdrew from it over the very strong objections of all other participants in all of Europe. Biden has made some rhetorical changes, but in practice he's accepted the whole program. The sanctions remain. It's Iran that is sanctioned after the United States withdrew from the agreement, not the United States that sanctions. Uh, the sanctions are over the objection of the Europeans. They don't agree with them. But they have to accept them. They have to adhere to them under U.S. threat. U.S. sanctions are third-party sanctions, meaning any country that doesn't accept them can get thrown out of the international financial system. It's basically based in New York. Uh, so Europe unwillingly accepts the sanctions. Biden has continued to say that it will not except a return to the JCPOA. It has to be a different treaty, a different agreement, which has harsher conditions on Iran. Now, it's very interesting what's happening now. The New York Times 
had an interesting editorial a couple of days ago. Very interesting. They called for a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East. Actually, that's been the right idea for decades. Uh, as you know, we've talked about it. I've been out talking about it constantly. There should be a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East. That would end any possible threat, whatever, whether you believe the threats or not, who would believe any threat, real or imagined, about Iranian nuclear weapons. Nuclear weapons free zone with inspection. So it's interesting that the New York Times editor suggested it with a proviso that it exclude Israel, that it exclude the one nuclear state in the region, which of course kills it. the proper nuclear weapons-free zone would include the states of the region, including the one state that has a massive nuclear weapons capacity. But the Times editors carefully excised that part. And in fact, that's the reason why the United States alone has been vetoing a nuclear weapons-free zone for years which the Times editors failed to mention. So Obama vetoed it uh, because it would include Israel. And uh, the, the Arab states are in favor of it. Iran's in favor of it. Global South's in favor of it strongly. Uh, Europe's in favor of it. U.S. vetoes. In fact, as we've discussed before, and it's crucial, so I'll repeat, the U.S. does not recognize that Israel has nuclear weapons. The reason for that is, if it does recognize it, questions immediately arise about U.S. law, which uh, bans eight countries that are developing nuclear weapons outside the framework of the international agreements. Neither political party in the United States has wanted to open that door, and activists haven't pursued it, but they should. So here's an opening. New York Times calls for a nuclear weapons-free zone, excluding the one nuclear weapon state in the region. Fine. Let's work for extending it. Ends any imagined Iranian threat. Ends any need for the sanctions. Move on towards a more peaceful world without serious threat of conflict, escalating conflict solution. Except you have to support illegal USAID to Israel. A spokesperson for the Nobel Prize winning international campaign to abolish uh, nuclear weapons says, despite Biden's campaign promises of wanting to work for arms control, wanting to work for disarmament, we're seeing that in reality, he's going full steam ahead with Trump's legacy nuclear weapons programs and continuing to spend more money on these weapons of mass destruction. Why, in a time of a pandemic, is the United States modernizing its nuclear weapons arsenal? Two reasons. One is called money. The money is not thrown into the ocean. Money for nuclear weapons development goes into the pockets of the arms manufacturers. 
And that's not just military industry. It's a large swath of American industry is involved in one way or another in arms production, indirectly in many ways. Now, furthermore, Congress wants it for lots of crazy reasons. So the Pentagon has been careful to scatter, uh, say, Minuteman uh, emplacements in many states in, uh, in rural areas. It's the commercial center for a rural area in some Idaho and so on. And the Congress says we want it. This is a part of the armed system, which in fact harms the United States. The Minuteman, every strategic analyst knows that it has no utility as a deterrent. On the other, what it does is attract attack. These are fixed emplacements. Russia knows where they are. China knows where they are. If there's any threat of war, the first thing they'll do is attack them to take them out of commission. And they serve no purpose. They add nothing to the military capacity. But even at the, at the point of direct harm to ourselves, it's necessary to increase uh, armaments. Actually, the same is true of the expanded nu- uh, nuclear weapon system. That simply joins with others to escalate, to lead to greater threats, greater tensions, uh, maybe hypersonic missiles, uh, uh, weaponizing outer space, all increasing the threat to us for two purposes. One, the money goes to centers of private capital. Two, it enhances the appearance of U.S. domination of the world. We can always, as every president says, we can outspend them. Now, we can waste more money than they can waste because we have a richer economy. So instead of using resources to deal with our scandalous health system, our collapsing infrastructure, our declining educational system, minimal social welfare that other countries have. Instead of that, let's uh, develop uh, an outer space command so we have better ways of killing ourselves and everyone else. Basically what it amounts to. Uh, As you know, the treaty, the treaty for the prevention of nuclear weapons production went into force a couple of months ago. United Nations Treaty to block any development of nuclear weapons signed by 122 countries. Uh, None of the nuclear states, but the Biden administration could take steps towards inducing other nuclear states to move towards accepting the basic provisions of this new treaty that's in force. That would mean accepting our obligation under the Non-Proliferation Treaty to take good faith efforts to eliminate nuclear weapons. All of that is perfectly possible. With enough public pressure, could happen. So just like establishing nuclear weapons-free zones could, could happen. 
as I think we've probably discussed, it's not just the Middle East zone. That's the most important. But there are others. What about the Africa zone? There is in Africa nuclear weapons-free zone, but it can't be implemented because the British reject international law and international judgments they, and maintain their former colonial possession of Diego Garcia in violation of the famous rule of law expelled most of the population to allow the United States to establish a military base there, which was upgraded to a nuclear military base in, under Obama. So that prevents the, the implementation of the African nuclear weapons free zone. And Diego Garcia is not symbolic. It's the base that's used for the bombing of uh, Central Asia and the Middle East. Actually, the same is true in the Pacific. There is a Pacific nuclear weapons free zone, but it's blocked by U.S. insistence on maintaining nuclear facilities on its Pacific islands. Which islands are those in the Pacific? Guam? Guam is one, but the other Pacific islands, I've forgotten exactly which, also have facilities for nuclear uh, nuclear submarines. Um, so it's basically nuclear weapons facilities. I've forgotten exactly which, but there's a range of them. Technically, the United States is not supposed to have nuclear weapons in Japan, but there's been case after case where it's been exposed to nuclear weapons or in Japanese harbors. Talk about your commitment to justice and what you've done, what you've accomplished over the years in terms of your scholarship, but also in inspiring so many people. That's for other people to answer, not me. I've done what I can other people to judge its validity and its efficacy. Thanks very much for your time. Good to talk to you. That was Noam Chomsky on The U.S. Rules the World. I talked with him on June 21st. Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar-activist, is America's leading dissident intellectual. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and progressive and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. Since its inception, we have made a special effort to record and archive Professor Chomsky's work. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Noam Chomsky, The U.S. Rules the World, and for Chomsky's two latest books, Consequences of Capitalism and Climate Crisis and the Global Green New Deal, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go to our website, alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free copy of a printed transcript, PDF, or MP3 of this program, just give us a call, 
1-800-444-1977. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. In an emergency meeting, members of CJSW's party planning committee meet to decide our next party theme. My idea of the best party ever is putting on music super loud and have a pool party with all of my friends. CJSW 90.9 FM, Calgary. Welcome to the party. Yeah. 